Are you ready? Are you sitting down? We're going to pull back the curtain on the divorce process, the mistakes and the missteps. How can couples navigate the divorce process? Can you still divorce in a healthy way? The conversation is as good as it gets. It's fun, insightful. It will change the way you think about your life and how to tackle life's challenges. The Shine On Podcast, Season 3. It's Episode 69 of The Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have an absolutely fantastic episode today, starting with a great docket segment. And then I am joined on the podcast featured guest segment by Dr. Christine Adams, a child and adult psychiatrist and author of the book, Living on Automatic, How Emotional Conditioning Shapes Our Lives and Relationships. In the past, we've gotten into the much debated topic of 50-50 custody. Should there be a presumption, the pros and cons of a presumed 50-50 schedule? Does the best interest of the children's standard that we've talked so much about, does it get lost? With this automatic presumption, what can the court system do better in child custody cases? And on today's episode, we get Dr. Adams' thoughts on these topics and get her insights and perspective on this and much more. And Dave, we recorded the episode with Dr. Adams right before Thanksgiving. I know you had some thoughts on the interview and the topics discussed, specifically the presumption of 50-50 and on her views about having one parent as the primary caregiver. So I want to ask you as someone who's lived through the ups and the downs and the highs and lows of child custody and parenting related things, and you've been through the process before, what are your thoughts on the 50-50 debate and what Dr. Adams had to say? Well, I guess we could start from the ideal. The ideal is that divorced couples get along and that they work something out that makes sense. That might or might not be a 50-50 split just because of geography or work schedules or anything else. Maybe 50-50 doesn't make make sense. But um, we get into it with the good doctor, and let's just say I don't want to spoil anything. Her thoughts are kind of provocative and maybe a little different than what, what I would expect. I think I'd start from the presumption that it, it's heartbreaking to take children away from a parent for any longer than is really necessary and so but the doctor may have some other thoughts and after all she's the phd and i'm not so but it's a great show Evan. and dave look some states have their presumption and other states hope to have legislation in place to implement that presumption and we've had judge cooper on the podcast before a former supreme court judge in new york county we got his thoughts on a 50 50 custody presumption And we've had others on the show in the past, attorneys, other psychiatrists, give their thoughts as well. And here's what it comes down to is that there's strong opinions and a wide range of opinions. But now shifting topics, how was your Thanksgiving? It was great. Quiet, but great. And continuing on the divorce theme here, my my ex-wife, it's always been important to her to have the kids on Thanksgiving. And I've relented. And so... It just wasn't that important a holiday to me. I like it. I like to eat and watch football as much as anybody else, but it never was like a big traditional thing in my family, and for her it was. So they go to Philadelphia, but it's a tradition that me and the boys have a nice dinner someplace the Wednesday just before Thanksgiving, which is what we did. And then for Thanksgiving, it was me, my brother, and my parents, just the four of us. 
watching football, stuffing our face. How about you? That's how it should be. Watching football, stuffing your face. I'm glad that the Patriots and Giants played on Sunday and not Thanksgiving. Because I got to tell you, that game was absolutely awful. A little better for the Giants. The Patriots, I mean, that this season is a debacle. The Patriots are unwatchable. Mac Jones should never play another down in the NFL ever again. And at this point, as a Patriots fan, it's going to be fascinating to watch what happens at the end of the year. Belichick, does he stay? Does he go? What are Robert Kraft's thoughts on having back-to-back losing seasons? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a rough time for your sports teams, whether it's the Red Sox or now the Patriots. All right, well, you don't have to start picking on both of my teams, but as far as the Patriots go, I surrender the argument, Council, because this is barely, like you say, barely watchable football. The Giants are slightly watchable football. The Patriots are unwatchable football. That game is not one that's going to be enshrined in the Canton uh, Football Hall of Fame. <laughs> it, it, it is ugly, but you're right. I don't know what's going to happen with Belichick. You guys can have him at this point. <laughs> have him back. Yeah, no, exactly right. And speaking of the other New York teams, I mean, the Jets, I mean, you talk about unwatchable. The Jets are unwatchable. <laughs> the Patriots are unwatchable. Saying the Giants are slightly might be an overstatement. But, Dave, I want to go back to something you said about the holidays and how you spend Thanksgiving and what's important to your ex-wife. And mm. holidays, it's hard, right, for parents. Mm. And I find it especially hard for my clients who are newly divorced. They haven't experienced the holidays like this before. They're used to spending time together under one roof in one house. What advice do you have for either newly divorced parents or parents going through a divorce that are going to really experience the holidays through this time of transition for the first time? And what would you say to parents about what to expect from their children as they're also adjusting to a new holiday normal? Well, don't expect perfect. That Maybe that's obvious, but it it's never going to be perfect again. And you, at some point, you just kind of have to give in to the fact that things are going to be different. This is the, the new normal for you. As I said, if you can ideally work something out with your ex-spouse so that you might give something up in order to get the kids on the family, that on the holiday that you want. If there's a holiday that's important to you, you're going to have to haggle a little bit and don't feel like you have to die on every hill, right? Give up something else, and hopefully you'll be able to find something. But there will come that one holiday where you used to be with your kids, where you will not be. And whether you're with your extended family or some other group, great. You might be alone. You might be alone in front of the TV watching Tony Romo and and Jim Nance call a game. And it's going to be a sad day. But my advice is have a sad day. It's okay. You're sad because you missed your kids. That's great. You love them. You're going to see them soon. So don't expect perfect. Do your best to to work it out. And Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> and Dave, where we do expect perfect is the docket. So as we always do here on the Shine On Podcast, let's fire it up. And now let's see what's on the docket. As a matter of fact, we do have a perfect docket today, Evan, in my opinion. And item one comes to us from the paper of record, the New York Times. Item one. Headline in the New York Times reads, can divorce be affordable? Yes, but only if spouses want it to be. This article posits the argument that there are ways to reduce the stress and expense of ending a marriage, but they require both parties 
to want to end the relationship civilly, which, as we know, can be the trick. Your thoughts on this article, Evan? Dave, i got to tell you, absolutely great article in the New York Times by Caitlin Kelly. And look, we've talked before in the podcast how expensive divorce can be and how I get asked time and time again, how much will a divorce cost? And the answer, it depends. And look, it depends on so many factors and so many things. And sure, the more complicated issues, financial, custody, look, it's going to add to the cost. Custody evaluations, business appraisals, art appraisals, custody evaluations, forensic accountants, all these things, and often necessary parts of the divorce action, they all cost money. But time and time again, it's not those issues. It's the people involved. Now, the article asks the question, can divorce be affordable? And suggests that the answer is yes. And look, the article is spot on. Divorce can be affordable. But here's the catch, and here's the argument I would make. It's not just that the parties themselves need to want to end the relationship civilly. The attorneys involved also need to act reasonable and professional, manage expectations, and not exacerbate the conflict. I would argue that it takes four people involved, the parties, but also the attorneys, to reduce the stress and expense in a divorce. And while it takes all four people I mentioned for it to be amicable, it only takes one. It only takes one of the four people acting differently or behaving not civilly. And guess what? You have that more expensive. You have that more high conflict and a more prolonged divorce. And Dave, look, we've talked about divorce is emotional and it's often impossible, no matter how hard people try to take the emotion out of it. So when you think back to when you went through it, did emotions play a role or impact some of the choices you made and how you felt about certain things at the time? Yeah, I think I would be lying if I said no. In other words, it's it's going to be an emotional process. I'll speak from my personal experience. I felt a lot of guilt. Evan, as you may know, I'm half Irish and half Jewish, so that's a lot of guilt right there. So I felt <laughs> I, I, I felt guilty that I had failed to some degree, and as a result – I had to tell my attorney to kind of stand down a couple times and say, well, I don't want to fight for that. And the, the attorney felt the need to apprise me of everything I was giving up. And that's what the attorney should have done. I know that. But so as I look back, I don't regret it. But yes, it, it, it's, it is absolutely a time where emotion is going to be tugging you. And hopefully it doesn't tug you too far. I don't regret anything. But to, to look back on that, yeah, for sure. Emotion played a big role. And we will move on to item number two. Item two. Item two comes to us from Slate.com and more specifically their Dear Prudence advice column. Headline reads, help. My sister divorced her husband without warning. Now I'm the one who's heartbroken. The writer writes, we used to be a trio and now I'm caught in between. Interesting from a different perspective here. Evan, your thoughts on this piece? Yeah, Dave, I really like this because I like the question. Because the question in the advice column addresses a really important point, yet interestingly, it's a point that's often not talked about a lot. This is really about the impact of divorce. And look, there's impacts all the way around. There's the loss of a spouse. There's the emotional loss. There's the financial loss. And we, these are all losses that we talk about openly. But the loss we don't talk about enough is the social loss, the loss of social circles, friendships. And this is the perfect example. 
Divorce is a change, a change for the spouses splitting up, and it's a change for the extended family. And look, just like your sister will move on, you'll move on too. Sure, you're not going to have the close relationship with your brother-in-law anymore, and that's sad. Take your moment, be sad, and it can hurt, and you can feel hurt. But life moves on, and new relationships are formed. And Dave, again, I want to go to you. You are our Shine On podcast resident guru. But but look, is there something to be said for the extended relationships, whether it's friendships, whether it's family relationships that people who you were close with, very close with, spent holidays together, that when you separate and split up, that those relationships, especially over time, they fall by the wayside. And they may, but what I'd say is they may and they may not. In other words, some of the some of the relationships will play out in ways that surprise you, and people that you think might have just because of their relationship with your ex-spouse, you would think that they would be verboten for you to talk to anymore. Some of those people will actually find you and say, you know what, I always liked you. I want to be friends. I want. I still want to be friends with you if that's okay. And you'll get some nice surprises as well. And then there will be some people that you never hear from again. I'm reminded that I, I have a friend who was, got divorced around the same time I did, and it was a deeply painful marriage that he was in. And, in fact, we surmised that his ex-wife had some emotional problems, might have even been bipolar. So it was it was rough. But my friend got close with a lot of the so-called in-laws. In other words... The, his his wife at the time had siblings, and so he gets close with the in-laws, and they called themselves the others. And so because the family was a little nutty, it is I'll say as a shorthand since I'm not naming names. <laughs> that, that was the it was like we all married it we all married into a nutty yeah. family, and it's nice to hear that my friend keeps in touch with them, the others, because they got to be very good friends, and even though that relationship is over. There is always going to be some, like in this in this case, in the advice column, It's there's a fair chance that she's going to see her former brother-in-law again because if there are kids involved, I don't know if there are, but sometimes you never say goodbye to someone, so they might find your way back into their life. That's the, that's the silver lining in my opinion. We now hear from you, the listeners, in this edition of Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. Ask Evan. In today's edition of Ask Evan, we hear from Bill, who writes to us from Rye, New York. Bill writes the following. Dear Evan, I am in the process of a divorce, and my wife has already begun a relationship with a new partner and has introduced our kids to this person. I feel it will be detrimental to the kids and, frankly, just unfair if this new person is experiencing birthdays, holidays, and other milestones in my place. Is there anything I can do? Your thoughts? Bill from Rye, what an absolutely great question. And look, this is something I encounter all the time. And one of the reasons I encounter this so frequently is because divorce takes a very, very long time. And look, this is a delicate question with an even more delicate answer. In many respects, it depends. It depends on the circumstances. It depends on the type of relationship. Look, the reality, Bill, you're never going to be replaced. It may feel like this new person is coming in spending time with your children, experiencing birthdays, holidays, and other milestones. But don't forget, you're also going to have a strong relationship, hopefully, with your children. You're going to be a part of these milestones, these holidays, 
and all these wonderful things with your children. I think the bigger question is twofold. One, how early in the process are you? If the divorce process just started and the children are going through uh, a transition with their parents splitting up and separating to introduce a significant other to the children very early on in the process is a big no-no and something the judges judges are not going to look favorably upon, something that many child psychiatrists and children's uh, therapists, they're not going to look too favorably upon either, especially given the transition that the children are already going through. If you're talking about your divorce has lasted four, five, six, seven years, and people want to move on with their life, and they're in a serious, committed relationship, and this person is someone that is going to be around for a long time, then I think the approach and the perspective might be different. So I think it depends on where you are in the divorce process, how long has it been going on, and how serious is the relationship. And look, it's not something that might ever feel good. But again, I think part of what I often tell clients about the divorce process, you want to think of the new family dynamic that will exist in the future. And if you could think about that, then look, you'll also hopefully move on and be in a similar position. So I think there's different ways to look at this and it, it it's never easy. Dave, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, for sure. It, it, I feel like I'm saying it's never easy a lot, <laughs> but it, it it's just is. And, and to some extent, although I sympathize with Bill in New York, at the end of the day, the, 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 the best thing to say to him might be, give it some time, give it some time. It'll start to feel normal. It's, it's not supposed to be easy. The kids are, the kids are going to adjust. It's going to take some time, but in the end, you may simply take solace in the fact that your ex partner is with someone that is a good person and going to take look after the kids. But like you say that you can never be replaced. You're the dad period. Yeah. And Dave, I'll just say, look, there, there have been instances that, there has been one party trying to introduce a significant other to the children. And there's a concern specifically about drugs or mental health or uh, alcohol. And in certain situations, there is something that you can do. You can file an emergency motion with the court. You can seek the court's assistance. Your attorney could reach out to your soon-to-be exes attorney if there is a real issue. And even if there's not an issue, if you feel that it's too soon in the process or it complicates things, the living situation. There's a lot of thought and negotiation and conversations that take place. But if there is a real concern, similar to the concerns I mentioned, there is something you can do if you need to put a stop to having your soon-to-be ex introduce a significant other to the kids. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast is Dr. Christine Adams. Dr. Adams is a child and adult psychiatrist and the co-author of the best-selling award-winning book, Living on Automatic, How Emotional Conditioning Shapes Our Lives and Relationships. Dr. Adams, welcome to the podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And Dr. Adams, I'm excited for today's episode. We're going to get into a lot of topics. And I want to start with the topic of joint custody. Many judges opt for joint custody decisions following divorce. Why do you think joint custody is in vogue right now? Good question. I think there are three reasons that I've learned about over my 27 years of work in the court system. 
Number one, it's easy for judges. They don't really have to do any investigation into the parents' abilities to rear children. Like King Solomon, they just split the child in half and say, you go half the time with your mom and half the time with your dad. And they judges also think that it's fair, just like King Solomon, to, to split the child 50-50, that the parents, it's a focus on the parents. Parents should have equal time with the child and not look at what's best for the child developmentally and growing up. What, what kind of parent do they need? They don't look at that question. They look at what's fair for the parents. And the third reason I think that this is in vogue is it's a backlash to the years and years that we had of presuming that mothers were the best custodial parent. Um, before that in history, it was always presumed that the father was the best custodial parent. So these things change over time. But I think it's a backlash to the, I think fathers have been very active in the movement to get custody. And it's a backlash to it being decided that only mothers are good custodial parents. So those are the three reasons I think it's in vogue right now. Dr. Adams, what observations do you have from your experience and practice as a child psychiatrist about how joint 50-50 custody impacts and affects children? I have seen a lot of these children come into therapy with me, and I have also seen a lot of the children in doing evaluations for the court system about custody and visitation. And I've found that they're quite affected with anxieties and depression or substance abuse, uh, at times anorexia, and at times suicidal feelings and attempts on their life. So it's distressful to them. They don't like the going back and forth. They feel very uprooted. They don't feel they have a home base to call home. They don't feel like they have my room in my house with the going back and forth. The child comes to believe that because a judge has made this decision and the parents must go along with it, that adults get to decide these things and that children have to comply rather than uh, the court deciding which parent they need to live with to grow up to be the healthiest emotionally that they can be. So as they grow up, they carry the idea with them that they must submit to others' decisions for them. This is the same thing that happened in childhood when they submitted themselves to the judge to do what the judge wanted. So it it affects them that way. It affects their adult relationships and the way they negotiate them. Then the history of marriage and how people choose mates holds clues as to why joint custody often does not work out. We discovered in our book, Living on Automatic, we put all the data in there from 80 years of research with people of all ages. And we discovered that there's two main personality types of people. There are people that are very good at giving care to other people and paying attention to their needs. And then there are people that are very good at consuming care and getting all the things they want and need from people around them. These two types of people find one another 
and form marriages and form romantic relationships. And the marriage rolls along for a while, looking pretty good. And then disagreement set in because each person sees the world and the other person differently. And then disagreement set in and they can't get along. And this leads to divorce. They cannot agree on decisions, including decisions about children. So why would a judge think that people who cannot agree on things could agree on how to rear a child is the question that comes up. There's also, because there's been a divorce, a lot of grief and anger and resentment that comes from the divorce. And each divorce partner must deal with these things or not deal with these things. Sometimes when they don't deal with these things, they wind up projecting these problems onto the child, onto the ex-spouse. So they may not cope well with it. And the upshot of it is that we found if people could agree on things, they would stay married. But because they can't agree, they fall into a category of not agreeing on things. So they can't agree on childbearing. So I, I, these are the things that, that are found about how 50-50 custody affects children and how it gets started in the first place with the marriage right off the bat. Now, people that are more compatible, maybe two people that are caregivers marry one another, then they're more likely to stay married because they don't have all these disagreements about things in their life. And so they stay married and they don't go before a judge in a divorce situation. But when the key factor is that if you can't agree and negotiate your marriage well, when you leave the marriage and go through a divorce and go your separate ways, you can't negotiate anything well in that circumstance either. Is there a particular custody arrangement that, in your experience, you find works best for children psychologically? Or are there other factors such as the age of the children or other things at play that might make it a case-by-case basis? Well, it's definitely case-by-case basis. And age is factored in. But over the years, what I found makes the best custody arrangement psychologically and developmentally for the child is sole custody with the emotional caregiving parent. Because this parent meets the physical and emotional needs of the child. They're tuned into the child. Interestingly enough, Um, when I have sent this message to the court and the court has listened, things have turned out very well for the child. I mean, there's been some upheaval because the other parent vehemently disagrees, but things settle down for the child. Even though the parents may still be vituperative with one another, the child has an easier time of it in their own home with the parent who cares about them. Now, also another interesting thing that I learned is that this may not be the parent who's already staying home with the children. 
the parent who's staying home with the children may be the care consuming patient. And the care cons, I mean, parent, the care consuming parent will take care from the child in what we call a role reversal, where the child takes care of the parent instead of the parent taking care of the child. This overburdens the child with taking care of an adult, and it doesn't meet the child's emotional and physical needs to grow up and develop appropriately. So what I suggest is even if that care-consuming parent is at home with the child when divorce occurs, and the other parent who works a 40 or 50-hour week is the caregiving parent, the caregiving parent should still be given full custody. That's what I think. The, the caregiving parent settles the child down, meets their needs. And even if they're working and the child is in daycare during the day while they're working, they know that at night when that parent gets home, they're going to get their needs met. There's going to- Adams, yeah, to, to, to that point, because I think it's a really interesting take that you have when it comes to sole custody and joint custody, are you receiving pushback? Are you receiving pushback from parents who are focusing on that sole custody designation, feeling that it minimizes one parent and empowers another parent? I think that parents that are caught up in a divorce dispute frame it that way. They frame it as a a fight, a war. And so frequently there, it's like a territorial dispute also. Well, I want 80%. You can have 20. I really want 90, but I'll give you 80. Yeah, I'll take 80 and give you 20. So a child is seen as a, as an item of like acreage. And there is a lot of pushback. It's become because it's become so in vogue to have joint custody, there's a lot of pushback. I hear it all the time from people when they write me, you know, well, how can I convince a judge that sole custody is best for my child? My child goes to the other parent's house. Their clothes aren't changed. Their clothes aren't washed. They're not bathed. They come home crying. They're regressed, meaning they're eight years old and they come home acting like a three-year-old. And then I have to get them back to being an eight-year-old during their visit with me. And they go right backwards again when they come back home the next time. So it's it's difficult for the child because they may not get to school on time. They may not get a breakfast made for them. They, I knew one family where the parents stopped every day at a Super America to buy a fat-filled sandwich for the kid to take for the lunch at school. And it just wasn't, it doesn't meet the child's needs to be living with the care-consuming parent. Dr. Adams, you coined the term impotent personality to describe someone who's demanding, irresponsible, and arrogant. In personal or professional relationships, how can we avoid or deal with people like that? Oh, gosh. That's a that's a lengthy answer for that one. These are people that are very self-centered. And they're very the reason they're self-centered is that they've grown up in a family where they've gotten messages from their parents that they're special and they're important 
and whatever they want should be indulged and that they should even be indulged when they're not wanting something. So there's a lot of attention paid to them. So of course, when they grow up, they have the same attributes and they're difficult to deal with because the scope of their world is right around their head. It's just what they think and what they want. And there's no view of the world outside of them to other people, to other events, to other situations. So it's difficult to deal with them. One of the best ways is to use the word no a lot and to be very direct because what you have to do is penetrate that self-absorbed shell that they have around them and being nice about it doesn't cut it. You just have to be direct with them and say, no, I'm not going to do that. No, what you're doing is unethical. No, what you're doing is wrong. And I won't participate. And then you've got to stick by your guns. And this is often what begins to develop in these marriages that the caregiving parent begins to say no to this self-absorbed parent. And that's when the marriage unravels. They have to dissolve it. And that parent has to get out of the situation. As a divorce lawyer, I deal with people and plenty of couples who struggle mightily to see eye to eye. You write about something called diversity in thinking, which you call pearl of distinctiveness among people. Tell us more about what that means. Okay, the diversity in thinking. The two types of people think differently. And that's like Shakespeare would say, I, there's the rub. Because (laughs) a self-absorbed person's style of thinking is very capricious. It can change from moment to moment. Um, It's very self-involved and not other-oriented. And it's focused on personal desires. People will hang on to dead relationships forever, even when they're dead. So they are very commitment-prone people. And when you get these two different styles of thinking together, it's like Mars and Venus trying to talk to one another. If it's just it creates a conflagration. It creates a repulsion. They don't, they can't communicate. They don't know what one another is saying. And often therapy is suggested for each person separately to learn about themselves. And sometimes marital therapy is suggested it for ways to quote, communicate better. But we call this concept that about impotent personalities and omnipotent personalities, a type of emotional conditioning. We discovered the same way that Pavlov's dogs were conditioned to salivate, even when the handlers didn't bring any food in the room. We discovered people are taught emotionally how to be conditioned in the first three years of their life, and it sets up their entire personality for the rest of their life. So depending on how you're related to emotionally by your parents when you're a child, This dictates how you're going to turn out and how you're going to conduct your relationships. So let's stay with the emotion theme. I know you're a big believer that emotions dominate our lives. And I've seen emotions play a role in really ending relationships. 
are our emo- emotions always correct, so to speak, or do we sometimes need to ignore them in order to avoid hurting people? Well, being a psychotherapist, I think the best policy is to understand your emotions, not to try and direct them one way or another, guide them, stop them or help them, but to understand them. And by that, I mean to usually sit with a therapist and say, I get angry when such and such happens. And for the therapist to then respond, well, let's go back into your childhood and find out how you were conditioned to feel that in your family growing up. And so in that way, you can understand your emotion. Once you understand something about yourself in your life, then you're free to say, wow, does what make sense for me to do that? Or was that just the way that I was raised? If it doesn't make sense, maybe I can do something else. And then you can make changes in your emotional responses to people. So they're not, they're not hard and fast, but they're learned so early in life that they look like they're set in concrete. But you can go back in therapy and learn about and understand how this got started. I've had people in therapy who were not allowed to express any emotions growing up except anger. And they were angry at this all the time and angry at that. And when I say, my goodness, your other emotions were so suppressed, what was going on? Well, one of my parents liked, enjoyed, and it made that parent happy whenever I expressed anger. They thought it was cute. So they allowed me to do it. So that's a powerful reinforcer. When a parent gives you permission to express one emotion and not another. So if you go back and understand how your emotion came up, then you're, you have the power over your emotion to decide, does it make sense? And am I going to change it? Or am I going to still act the way I was taught to act as a child? Dr. Adams, you've talked in the past about the value of the ability to observe and to think critically about yourself. Can you give us an example how this could help in a relationship or marriage? Well, the example I just cited is if both parents try and investigate when things come up, how did I learn this reaction? Why do I have this reaction to my spouse? Who did I learn it from? How did I learn it? What the mechanics were? And is it reasonable for this circumstance that exists now? That's the patient. The phrase I always use with my patients, a standard of reasonableness is a standard you want to adopt in your life. And the reasonableness has to be applied to the circumstance you're in now with the person you're in it now. And it may not be good for every circumstance with that person. It may not be good next week. It may not be good for every person that you're involved in a relationship with. So adopting a a flexibility in a, a questioning of, am I being reasonable both to myself and to the other person always helps in relationships because people don't usually do that. They just react in a way that they learned emotionally in childhood. Have you ever worked with someone whose psychological makeup 
was so complex that it had you stumped? And I guess another way to ask the question, are there some psychological problems that just simply might not have solutions? I'm sure that, I mean, I I know I've had very complicated cases, but by picking away a little bit and a little bit and in complicated cases, it takes longer in therapy to do that. But by picking away at the things that people learn in their childhood from their parents, we're pretty much able to do it. We hit stumbling blocks along the way and things look like they're not working out for a while, but the wheels are always turning and people are always thinking and looking at themselves. So in the type of therapy that I do, it which is called deconditioning therapy, to decondition you from all these childhood condition roles you were taught, it's pretty successful. And a lot of people say, well, how can you keep a self-centered person in therapy and help them? I said, well, the first thing is they have to commit to being there and being somewhat introspective. And once they learn about how they were overindulged as a child and given anything they wanted and how they expect that from other people, their brain kicks in and they start thinking, well, that's really interesting, Dr. Adams. I never knew that. I never thought about that. It never occurred to me. And then they can make just as much progress in therapy as omnipotently conditioned people. So it's it's possible. The problem is a lot of people flee therapy before they get down to the meat. They just decide to leave. Dr. Adams, you mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, your work in the court system. As you look at the court system today, as opposed to when you first started doing evaluations for the courts, are there certain flaws with the court system or things you would like to see changed or improved to help the court system, really the judges, see things from the psychological perspective that would benefit or aid the court when the judge makes certain determinations on parenting and custody? Yes, I I think very strongly. And when I've been able to get a judge's ear about doing this and they've done it, it's worked out. Judges must identify and distinguish the two parents' parenting roles, caregiver or care consumer. And to do this, they must be educated almost as much as a child psychiatrist or a child psychologist about parents' personalities so that they can make informed and better decisions for the children. And we didn't we didn't get in much to, and I don't know if you want to postpone this till later, about the type of visitation and why visitation with a non-custodial parent is so important. I'll just mention yeah, that. No, let's, yeah, we can, we get can into reserve it. Yeah. that for later if you want. You want to do that now? Yeah, yeah. No, let's get into it. Yep. Well, since, since I found that full custody with the caregiving parent is very important for the child's development, equally... Regular visitation with the non-custodial parent, who's usually the care-consuming parent, um, it is equally important. The child needs to see constantly through regular visits the reality of what this parent is like toward them. 
Um, if that parent decides not to have a relationship with the child, then the child may idealize the absent parent. They may feel guilt, remorse, have suicidal feelings over the parents abandoning them. And many care-consuming parents, when they learn they're not going to get joint custody, abandon their child. And they don't realize that they still have tremendous impact on that child and that they need to be there predictably for visitation and birthdays and sporting events, things like that. And that's the biggest problem that I've seen when visitation occurs regularly with a non-custodial parent and the child is placed with a custodial parent who's the caregiver, then things work pretty smoothly in, in my experience. Um, but judges really have to work harder, and I realize it's not their bailiwick to understand the psychological imperatives for children and what parents are like. But if they're in family court or they do divorce and custody cases, it behooves them to learn about these things. And it's not rocket science. I, I put it all in my book. People who read the book and who take some classes with me and who listen to podcasts get a pretty good facility for identifying different types of people and their effects on children. And talking with the children is tremendously helpful because if a judge does that, then the children are usually uncensored in the way they talk about their parents. And you can get a pretty good idea of from the child of who meets your needs, who hugs you and kisses you and tucks you in at night and who gets you to school on time and gets you a lunch and washes your clothes. And Dr. Adams, as someone who works with both adults and children, what advice or recommendations do you have for a situation where a child absolutely refuses to spend time and to visit with the non-custodial parent? Well, I think... An investigation needs to occur by the court as to what's going on, because there's a lot of different reasons this happens. Sometimes there's parental alienation. Sometimes there's false parental alienation. Sometimes the, the parent that the child is visiting is so harmful emotionally with their self-centeredness that they can't really do anything with the child that forms a relationship with them. And the children are rejecting that parent. Um, let's see what else. Sometimes there are psychological reasons in the child that they miss their parent who's their caregiver and they can't tolerate time with the other parent out of anxiety. And that can be tackled in a therapy uh, with the child. But you really, the judge really has to investigate what's going on in this scenario. Is the child frightened? Why are they frightened? Is there something about the relationship with the non-custodial parent that uh, is detrimental to the child and that's why they don't want to go? Some children tell me when I go to dad's house or mom's house, I'm just bored. He or she doesn't do anything with me. They read a book or they watch television, but they don't interact with me. And that's enough to make a child not want to go over there. 
it's nothing harmful like they're being sexually abused, but it still makes them feel, why should I force myself to do this thing when it makes me unhappy? So I think on a case-by-case basis, it has to be looked at why. So is that in part where the joint custody presumption in many ways falls short? It takes away the investigative due diligence approach into the why, and it essentially relegates the decision on custody really to a check-in-the-box paper document as opposed to really looking into what might be best for the child or the children, really having the judge consult with certain mental health professionals. Does that investigative approach and the why, what's happening here, really get pushed to the the wayside in a joint custody presumption? That's a beautiful way to put it. It's absolutely a formatted decision rather than an investigative decision. And that's the problem. That's the whole problem. It's a presumption parents are equal, so we can send the child here 50% and there 50% of the time without really looking at the particular needs of this child and in this family. I get a lot of inquiries from children, from parents of children who are young and who have only lived with the main caregiving parent, the other parent has been working a lot of the time. And now all of a sudden they're supposed to send the child over to the other parent 50% of the time. And the child doesn't really know that parent because there hasn't been the degree of interaction as with the the mother or the caregiving parent. So that has, these things have to be investigated and say, does this make sense? Does this make sense? based on the child's needs, by their age, by the relationship they have or haven't had with this parent, by the way this parent interacts with the child. And these are all things that can be learned. And you, I don't think you need an MD degree or a PhD. They can be learned through just application and reading and talking with other mental health professionals. I'm happy to talk with judges about these issues and guide them in the right direction. Things to look for in talking with the children. I wrote a blog on it. I'm a blogger at Psychology Today. And the blog is also called Living on Automatic. And there's a blog in there about how judges can talk to children and interview them. So I I think these things can be learned because judges are trained in the law and law is not black and white in any circumstance, but particularly in family law. There's a lot of discretion that the judge has to use to make decisions. So I think discretion can be learned. What's the most fulfilling part of what you do? Well, since I've worn two hats or three hats, as an expert witness in court and as a custody evaluator and as a therapist, the court process is very frustrating to a child psychiatrist because psychological issues are not understood well and judges sometimes think they're not important. The therapy, doing psychotherapy is always very gratifying because you get to see people change and you get to see them 
realize things about themselves and understand things and go, gosh, my view of life used to be like a horse with blinders on. And now I'm taking the blinders off and I can see all these kinds of people I never saw before. I can have different romantic relationships and I can improve my relationships with people. So it's all very interesting, but I think the psychotherapy is most gratifying. And when I've been in court situations where the court has listened to a recommendation that I've done and things turn out well for the child, that's very gratifying. But I think the court loses focus on doing what's best for the child and gets focused instead on the parents and their need to be treated fairly. Dr. Adams, I want to bring on producer Dave for a fun segment we do called They Said It. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Evan. Um, doctor, I apologize. We didn't prep you for this. I just realized, but we're going to do a segment called they said it. So let's start it up. They said it. They said it. They said it. So in the segment, we take three notable quotes and then doctor, we just have you react to them. However you like agree, disagree, or otherwise. The first quote comes to us from legendary columnist Irma Bombeck. And it goes as follows. Children need love the most when they deserve it the least. Irma Bombeck said that. Doctor, what do you think? I agree. I agree. (laughs) Can you tell us more about the dichotomy there? I think she's getting at the idea of unconditional love. So even if you have a kid that's acting badly or frustrating you, they still need love. They need a consistency of the way they're treated. Very good. Second quote. Let's move on to that right now. This We go from Irma Bombeck to Dostoevsky. And Dostoevsky, the noted philosopher, said the following. The soul is healed by being with children. Simple thought. What do you think of that, Doc? Well, I would say it depends on the child. That's for sure. Some children are hell to be around. (laughs) They're going to usually grow up to be these care-consuming parents. And sometimes your soul gets rattled when you're around them and is not healed at all. So I guess I would disagree. Mm, Interesting. So in in your career and dealing with so many children, as it bet, would you describe it as what? Like a a catch-as-catch-can? Sometimes they make your day and then other days they really make your day hard? Well, I think some children are easier to deal with, and um, the impotent children can be very difficult to deal with. They're very demanding, selfish, and they're not, not fun to be around. They're always raising hell, being disruptive with other kids, throwing their toys around. So those children are not pleasant to be around, but children that are being raised to be omnipotent are calmer, and they're more interesting to be around. They're often very shy and withdrawn, so you have to sit and draw them out, but they're much more interesting to be with. All right, we will move to our final quote, and it reads as follows. The best security blanket a child can have is parents who respect each other. And that was Jane Blaustone who said that. Your thoughts on that one, Dr. Adams? Uh, I think that that makes a child feel quite secure, but 
remember in 50% of marriages, they end in divorce and parents are not respectful of one another. And so for 50% of our children, after first marriages, um, they do not have parents that respect each other. So they lack in security. Isn't it possible for a divorced couple to respect each other? In my experience, it's very, very difficult because of the different ways they see each other and see the world and the friction that has happened between them. Well, I could push back on you a little further, but but you're the guest and I don't want to take up the... I know I, ha- I happen to be a divorced guy and, and the one thing that I think my ex-wife and I have preserved is respect. I like to think so. I could be wrong. Maybe she doesn't respect me. But it's I took as part of that quote, maybe just from where I sit, that if you do get divorced, put at the list of the top of your priorities to treat your ex well, at least in front of your children, which sounds manipulative, but at least show a, a unified front. And I think that makes a difference. But I'm not a PhD. <laughs> so yeah. reasonable minds may disagree. Well, some people can do it, but most of the time they can't. It's been my observation. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you for indulging us and playing They Said It. And Evan, back to you. Dr. Adams, this was fantastic. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Your book, Living on Automatic, How Emotional Conditioning Shapes Our Lives and Relationships. I know you mentioned you have a blog in psychology today. Tell everybody listening where they could find the book, find the blog, and really find out everything and all the wonderful resources that you have out there. Well, the book, Living on Automatic, is published by bloomsbury.com, B-L-O-O-M-S-B-U-R-Y.com. And that's where it's probably the cheapest. Amazon is a little more expensive. And the blog is also called Living on Automatic at psychologytoday.com. There's a lot of stuff because I'm interested in it on custody and divorce shared custody, soul custody, and other topics that have to do with relationships on that blog. And then I have a website, drchristineadams.com, and doctor is spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R. And on my website, I've got podcasts, radio interviews, written interviews, hundreds of blogs that I've written in addition to the Psychology Today And then just sort of basic information about what I do and and what I'm up to with studying emotional conditioning in people. Great. That's fantastic. Dr. Adams, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been great. Episode 69. What a show. This was an absolutely fantastic episode and a lively discussion with Dr. Christine Adams, a brilliant docket, a brilliant Ask Evan segment and producer Dave, you crushed it yet again. Just happy to be part of the team, Evan, taking it day by day. The good Lord willing, we put out another great episode of Shine On. And you got that right in. To all the listeners, you can listen to the podcast and all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and whoever else you get your podcast, including the legendary Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Mm-hmm.